Well, I've been overcome by the Holy Spirit this summer. It has been the fastest summer of my life. Uh, I read recently an email that a friend sent, and he said, life is like toilet paper. As you get toward the end, it goes faster. <laughs> and that is, I mean, I can hardly believe this is my last Sunday with y'all. But I do want to just take a moment and give thanks. Music team, the staff uh, have been so wonderfully welcoming. Uh, it's been a joy to work with the session, and thank you to Debbie for those kind words. Um, love this congregation. I love you with all my heart. And I want to really give thanks for Tim. Uh, it was a beautiful letter that he wrote uh, in the bulletin this morning, and I'm so glad that he asked me to do this, and I'm so glad that he and Beth have had a summer of rest and recreation and healing. Um, he'll be back in the office tomorrow, I believe, and preaching next Sunday, and the fall's going to be awesome. Uh, Elizabeth told me that there are 37 people who are uh, potential new members of this church, and I'm sure that they came largely due to Tim's leadership in preaching, but I tried not to turn any of them away. I just wanted to keep the seat warm this summer. We advertised this uh, series on Ephesians as the church's wealth, work, and worship. The first three chapters of Ephesians talk about the wealth of our inheritance in Christ, that we've been saved by grace through faith, and that God's broken down all the barriers between believers that we have been given a love that is beyond understanding. And then chapter 4 begins to tell us what to do in response to the grace of God, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to uh, understand what gifts God has given us, to use them to build up the body of Christ, to speak the truth in love with one another and grow up into Christ and to be part of a Christian family. But this morning... We come to the last of those W's, and that is the church's warfare. My favorite book about spiritual warfare is a classic. C.S. Lewis wrote it a long time ago, The Screwtape Letters. It's still his best-selling single book. Uh, it is a great satire. If you've never read The Screwtape Letters, I encourage you to do that. But I want to read just a couple sentences from his preface to The Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The New Testament has the proper balance about spiritual warfare. Jesus, the apostles, all say that Satan is real, that he's powerful, but that the Spirit of God is far more powerful. A verse to remember is 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. Satan's the prince of this world, those apart from Christ, but God, through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, is greater Lewis points out in the book that Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan is rather the opposite of Michael, the archangel, because Satan's a fallen angel. 
Martin Luther called him God Satan. He can only do what God permits. He's as it were on a string. But Satan is real. And demons are real. Evil is real. And we are called not to be naive, but to put on the full armor of God. The strongest passage in all of Scripture about spiritual warfare is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Listen, for this is the word of God for us this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words might be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. I think the big idea in this passage is this, that because the Spirit of God in us is greater than the evil one, we don't need to ignore Satan or to fear him, but we are to put on the whole armor of God. C.S. Lewis talks about those who disbelieve in the existence of the devils. I'm a fan of George Barna. He's sort of the Christian Gallup pollster. And he surveys Christians on a number of things regularly. One of his recent surveys said that People who call themselves born-again Christians, one in four do not believe in the existence of Satan. That blows my mind. Born-again is a symbol for evangelical, as in evangelical Presbyterian church. And a mark of evangelicals is that we hold to the full authority of Scripture. When I was in seminary, we, I took a course the Gospels, Acts, and Revelation. We had to outline all of those books and identify the major themes in each one of them. The major themes in the book of Matthew are these. First, the kingdom of God. Second, the realm of Satan and evil. And third, money and its use. Jesus talks over and over again about Satan and evil. Why is it that people reject belief in the devils? Well, I think one reason is that it's been caricatures. Satan, I think, produces these things. He has a mimeograph machine that turns out these fake portrayals. Every Halloween, you see it. Little kids with ugly masks and red 
outfits and a pitchfork, supposedly representing Satan. That is so ridiculously contrary to Scripture. How does the Bible portray Satan? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says he is an angel of light. If evil were not attractive, we would not be enticed. And so, reject any of those simple-minded caricatures. Also, some people are troubled by the ethical dimension of evil and Satan. Those of you who are old like me remember the comedian Flip Wilson and his character Geraldine who was always saying, the devil made me do it. People don't want to cop out and say, the devil made me do it. And in fact, scripture does not allow us that cop out. James chapter 1 verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Satan is part of that luring and enticing. I think Satan is in charge of the media in most of American society. He tempts, <clears throat> we say yes or no. Those who disbelieve in the existence of Satan are his easy victims. But then there are those who have an excessive, unhealthy interest <clears throat> in the evil one, and I think they are equally misguided. There was a series of books a while back based on a phrase from this passage, this present darkness, written by a man named Frank Peretti. Now, the strength of that book is that it portrayed spiritual warfare, the existence of demons and angels, and in fact, there is a battle. But the thing that troubled me was it was dualistic. Peretti portrayed the power of Satan as being almost equal, if not equal, to the power of God. And that we, our prayers, kind of cast the deciding vote. That is contrary to Scripture. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When I was in Houston, Texas, a group of members of our church came under the influence of a teacher who portrayed himself as an expert in spiritual warfare. This guy named the demons. He talked about the demon of habituation, the demon of depression, the demon of division. And a lot of these folks came under his sway. They invited me to one of their prayer meetings. And as they each prayed, they would begin by saying, Satan, I bind you in the strong name of Jesus. Satan, you will have no power here. That sort of thing. And when the prayer meeting was over, I just commented to the group, we are praying to Almighty God and the first person we address is Satan? I don't get that. Again, Satan is real, but God is greater. We need to put on the armor of God, and that's what Paul tells us to do in this passage. There is one verb that is used four different times. It's the primary word. It is to stand. We're to stand against the schemes of the evil one. To withstand in the evil day. To stand firm. Stand therefore. That word means to persevere against. To face head on. When I was pastoring in Fort Lauderdale, we had a missionary from Africa. And he told us a fascinating thing. 
Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And this missionary said that he was told that if you are ever out in the bush and a lion comes to attack, you better have a spear with you. And he said, do not run. You have no chance. Lions are way faster than you. And do not cower in fear. Look the lion straight in the face, and often they will go away. But if they charge, he says, bend down and hold your spear up. Stand, hold it firm. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee for, from you. Who showed us that we can stand firm? There's only one person who experienced all the power that temptation has to offer, and that's Jesus Christ. You and I give in before temptation has had its complete effect, but Jesus never gave in, and therefore, he experienced the full wrath of Satan. He experienced all the temptation could offer, and he stood firm. And so Paul tells us how to do that. Elizabeth's already mentioned the armor, and the Apostle Paul, of course, was writing the book of Ephesians from prison. He was actually chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard, and this soldier had that armor, and I think that may have inspired what the Apostle Paul wrote. But he begins with the belt of truth. Now, if you're familiar, if you saw that Animal House movie, or <laughs> familiar with uh, Roman life, everyone wore a tunic. It was long, and you ladies know how difficult it is to run in a dress. And so they would take their tunic and they would tuck it into their belt so that they would have freedom of movement. Paul's telling us, and Jesus tells us, that's what the truth is for us. The truth sets us free, Jesus says in John 8, 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If we live in the truth, we have freedom. But when we lie, we begin a tangled web. I don't know how many of you saw the TV series Breaking Bad. It is not for the faint of heart. It's certainly not for children or even young teens. But it is a powerful presentation of what happens with a lie. Walter White is a high school chemistry teacher who's dying of cancer, and he's very concerned, appropriately, that his family would be taken care of, but he chooses an evil way to try to do that. He's, he knows chemistry, and so he starts cooking methamphetamine. He lies to his wife. He lies to his son. He lies to his employer. He lies to his brother, who's a DEA agent, and the result is absolute devastation. Confession. Confession is what Walter White needed to do, and it's what we need to do, to speak the truth. Lord, I've sinned. Forgive me. God hears confessions. He does not hear excuses. The second part of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. As Elizabeth said, it protects a key part of our anatomy, our hearts. The basic meaning of righteousness 
is a right relationship with God which results in right actions. 1 John and the book of Revelation describes Satan as the man of lawlessness. He loves it when we break God's law, when we think that by doing our own thing, by pursuing self, we will be happier. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with the Father, and the blood of Christ protects us. The shoes of the gospel of peace. I believe Paul was thinking when he wrote this of Isaiah 52.7. <clears throat> Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The Roman soldier wore hobnailed boots so that he could stand strong. <clears throat> the gospel of peace enables us to stand. Again, peace, like righteousness, is harmony with God, harmony within which results in harmony with other people. Shalom, my friends, the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shield of faith extinguishes, Paul says, the flaming darts of the evil one. The word devil, diabolos, means literally the accuser. And those are the flaming darts of the evil one. When we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Why? So that we will confess our sin, that we will repent that we will be restored, cleansed, and once again righteous. But Satan takes that same sin and he throws it in our face as an accusation. You call yourself a Christian? Look at what you just did. You better never talk to anybody about your so-called faith, you hypocrite. Martin Luther was a man who struggled mightily with Satan and with depression. Anne and I visited Luther's study when we went through Europe, and against one wall, there is a black ink stain. It's a famous story that Luther threw his inkwell at Satan when he was doing a particular battle. Now, I really don't believe that's the same ink that Martin Luther threw 500 years ago, but Luther would do battle, and he would finally say, Eo baptizo, I have been baptized. I belong to Jesus Christ. Get behind me, Satan. That is the shield of faith, and it is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation guards that important part, our brain. Satan wants to confuse our thinking. He is the prince of confusion, the father of lies. Our salvation does not depend upon our faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God. That is our helmet of salvation. Paul wrote, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Our salvation is from Christ and Christ alone, by faith, 
and faith alone, through grace and grace alone. Now, Paul lists those five defensive pieces of armor, but he also says that we can take the offensive against evil. And he mentions two things. The first is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How did Jesus respond when Satan tempted him in the wilderness? Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. The Word of God was his powerful weapon. And the Gospels tell us that Satan departed from him until a more opportune time. Satan never left him, but he departed, and angels came and ministered to Jesus Christ. The same thing is true of us if we will use the sword of the Spirit. David wrote in Psalm 119, Lord, your word have I stored in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think that stresses the importance of memorizing Scripture. Now, I know immediately some of you are going to say, I am no good at memorization. I think everyone can memorize if you are serious about it. Start simple. Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. We can't always have the sword of the Spirit with us, but if we memorize Scripture, it's like I saw in the Olympics, karate. It's a powerful weapon against the evil one. And then there is praying in the Spirit. I've told you that I did not grow up in a Christian family, never set foot in a church until I was 14 years old. But my mom loved to listen to music on the radio. And she played KDKA, which was the first radio station in America in Pittsburgh. And they would play the popular songs back then of the 50s and 60s, which tells you how old I am. One of the songs that I remember, again, I don't know why I remembered this, but it really stuck with me, was called Let the Sunshine In. This little girl's voice says, When I forget to say my prayers, the devil laughs with glee, but he feels so awful, awful when he sees me on my knees. Now, my parents had put up, again, I have no earthly idea why, that prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep, if I should die before I wake, that freaked me out. <laughs> Help me the path of love to take and keep me safe for thy dear sake, amen. You know, I, I knew that prayer was something you were supposed to do. I never did it, but that song really, really struck me. Yeah, Satan cowers before those who are on their knees. When we pray, he is indeed afraid, and he feels so awful, awful. The Christian who spends significant time in prayer is the Christian who will stand against the evil one. I'm going to share an example of probably the greatest example in my life of the power of prayer. Um, it's not maybe politically correct, but I've never been accused of being politically correct. My friend Bob has given me permission to share this story, and he's encouraged me to do that. When I was a camp director, one of my counselors was Bob. 
And at the end of the summer, he came into my office, and he sat down and began to weep. And he said, Dave, I got to confess something to you. I said, okay. He said, I've been struggling with same-sex attraction as long as I can remember, certainly all through my adolescence and early adulthood. I don't feel attracted to boys, for which I was very thankful, but I do struggle with attraction to men. I went to a counselor, a secular counselor, and she said, just embrace the fact that you're gay. Celebrate it. And I tried to do that. I am miserable. I know that's not God's will for my life, but I feel powerless. I said, Bob, I'm going to suggest three things. First of all, don't go back to that counselor. Find a Christian counselor who can counsel you according to the word of God. Secondly, find a support group. I knew of a number of support groups in Pittsburgh for people who were dealing with sexual issues. And third, I want you to spend significant time every morning dedicating that day to Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us to live one day at a time, and I need you to pray that you will be strong one day at a time. Well, Bob did all three of those things. He, he works in downtown Pittsburgh, and as he drives to work every day, Monday through Friday, he stops at an Episcopal church that has communion at 7.30 in the morning. He takes communion, he rededicates himself to his wife, to his children, to his grandchildren, and he dedicates that day to being whole. I saw him a while back and I said, let me ask you an honest question. Do you ever struggle with same-sex feelings? And he said, yeah. He said, but it's like every other temptation. I'm able, through Christ, to be victorious. This passage is not theoretical, folks. It is very practical. Because we are involved in spiritual warfare. We have a sworn enemy in Satan and his angels, and they want us to believe the lie that the world proclaims, that we can be happier going our own way. They want to accuse us and cause us to doubt our faith. They want us to live lives of weakness surrendered to evil. We are in a spiritual battle, and there are casualties. You and I have seen them. But if we remember that the Holy Spirit in us is greater than he who is in the world, if we use the armor that God has supplied, we will be what Paul says in Romans 8, more than conquerors through him who loves us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you conquered Satan. By your death on the cross, you made a public spectacle of the powers of evil. You conquered sin and death and rose again to new life that we might know life abundant, life eternal, and life victorious in the Spirit. We praise you for you are the source of every good and perfect gift. And we thank you for the whole armor of God that you have given to us that we might stand for you. We pray in your blessed name.